Good to be here together. Um, my name's Graeme. If you don't know me, uh, minister here. Uh, a few things. Make sure you've got 1 Samuel open in front of you. That would be very helpful. And just to follow where we're going and make sure that I'm saying what the Word of God is saying. That's your job today. Um, and uh, there's an outline too in the, in the bulletin that would be handy to have open in front of you if you get that out. It is good to be together. It's, um, it's a privilege, isn't it? It really is. It's something that we as Christians get to do. Um, if you're a Christian person, it's, that's what we get to do. Uh, and that is a good thing. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping you're encouraged just being here this morning together. Uh, we'll share God's word together. We'll hear him speak. We'll encourage each other. We sing together. It is a good thing that we get to do. I was thinking that some people in the world, um, I was going to say, would die to be able to do what we do. Actually, they're dying because they do what we do. <laughs> but we get to do it. Isn't that good? Um, and we can do it in the comfort of our nice little building here, and it's pretty good. Anyway, let me pray, and we'll open up 1 Samuel 2 and have a think about that. Father, we thank you for um, all the good things you give us. Just one, Lord, the, the, uh, the opportunity we have to meet together, and uh, we get to do this as, as Christian people. Lord, we pray today that you'd speak to us. Um, that we would hear your words and that we would put them into practice in our lives, uh, that you would have, give us open ears, open hearts and minds. Um, and uh, Lord, we thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know what? I, I get that there are people who uh, dislike the church. I get that. I did a funeral recently and a young man refused to talk to me. He actually turned his back to me. Um, and I, I presume because I represented something that he really didn't like. And I get that. It's like there are people who, I get that there are people who oppose the church. There are people who are actively working against God, uh, followers of Jesus, and anything that followers of Jesus do. I get that. You know, we disagree. Perhaps there's been pain. Uh, perhaps they've been hurt by the church before uh, and of course there's bad history isn't there so I get that I get that there are people who oppose God's church and that's okay in fact we ought to expect that from the world that we live in but what do we do when opposition comes from inside the church what do we do then what do we do when the church the church's human leaders are indifferent to the gospel they're indifferent in their faith. Uh, they don't live a holy life. What do we do then? One commentator wrote, It's a bleak hour indeed when the light of the world is part of the darkness. Well, the temple regime under Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, was such a time. But the Lord didn't abandon his people. He didn't abandon his promises in the midst of judgment, there's grace, there's hope. God is at work, even in such times. So, up at Shiloh, though, well, God's church is in a mess. Uh, this is the first point in our outline, verses 11 to 26. Now, Hannah really has just said amen to her prayer, hasn't she? That was last week, uh, chapters 2, 1 to 10, uh, where, she's, where she has alluded to the arrogant. You might remember this from last week. The wicked, those who contend with the Lord, and here they are. Verse 12, if you see your Bible there, verse 12 and onwards, but they're not Canaanites, 
they're not Philistines. No, no, no. These are priests of Israel that, is going to, that are going to be referred to. God's church, his temple, worship. It was in a mess. Worship was a farce. So here's the scene. Here's what was going on up at Shiloh at this, uh, this temple. So a worshipper is, um, is cooking his portion of the peace offering for the post-sacrificial meal that he's going to share and enjoy with his family. Uh, and here comes the ubiquitous priest's servant. He's hanging around like a bad smell. He has his infamous three-pronged barbecue fork and he plunges it into the worshipper's pot and whatever the fork brings up, well, then he carts away to the priest's quarters. But the priest was already allotted the, the breast and the right leg. Leviticus 7 tells us that. But at Shiloh, the priests were greedy. They, uh, so they sent their fork man to stab for more. But it gets worse. Sometimes before the fat was burned in honour of the Lord, as what was custom, uh, what, what was law from Leviticus 3 this time, the priest lackey would appear and demand fresh, uncooked pieces of meat so they could roast it on Phineas's Weber. Um, and if the worshipper complained and reminded the priest's man of the proper reverence that ought to happen here, well, the young man turns thug and he threatens violence. That's what was going on up at Shiloh. But this mess gets worse. There was also a moral offence, and we read about it in verses 22 and 23, and everyone in Israel knew about it. Hophni and Phinehas, these two sons of Eli, were sleeping with the women who attended the temple and its surrounds. So when we look at verse 12, well, verse 12 is on the money, isn't it? They were wicked men. In fact, one of the Bible translators translates the word as scoundrels. I like that word too. Scoundrels. They were. But as verse 12 continues, the real issue, the root of it all, and you can see it there in black and white, is that they had no regard for the Lord. Literally, it says, they did not know Yahweh. How tragic that such words describe the spiritual leaders of God's people. They did not know the Lord. How tragic that is. And then given that root, well, who wouldn't expect the fruit that we read about? But in the middle of all this, there's hope. Samuel. Samuel. The little boy who's growing up, who I just love his mother provides a cloak for, don't you love that? Mummy's coming up. I'm growing. I need a cloak. Isn't that cool? <laughs> See, scattered throughout and in contrast to Eli's sons are short little notes about Samuel. These are silent witnesses to God's work providing for his people. So here's a summary I've got up on the screen here. Uh, well, there's Samuel serving in 2.11. Then there's the liturgical sins about what's going on, the, the barbecue fork man, that guy. Uh, there's Samuel serving again in 2.18 to 21. Then there's the, these moral sins, Halfney and Phineas sleeping with the temple attendants. Then Samuel growing is mentioned. Then there's prophecy of judgment. We'll get to that in a minute. And then right at the end, or the start of chapter 3, is Samuel serving again. You see, God is at work ever so quietly, 
providing new godly leadership for his people. He hasn't given up on them at all. Now, I can imagine it must have seemed hopeless for the faithful believers in Israel. Don't you think? Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. These are my leaders. This is the the tribe of, of Levi that looks after the temple. These are the Israel's leaders. And then they go up to Shiloh and they see and experience the greed, the, the immorality, the hypocrisy that temple had turned into a place where sin was committed rather than confessed. You wouldn't blame them, would you, for feeling a little bit disheartened, for questioning maybe, What's, what God, what are you doing when you put these doofuses up there? <laughs> it's a nice word for them, really, these scoundrels. But ever so quietly, the text keeps on whispering to us, don't forget Samuel. Don't forget Samuel. God is still at work. He's far bigger than any dodgy priest. I read recently a story of a, a B-17 bombing run over a German city during World War II. Uh, Nazi anti-aircraft shells had hit the fuel tanks of the bomber, but no explosion. The morning after the raid, the, the pilot went down to ask the crew chief for the shell that hit the tank. You know, everyone wants a souvenir, right? Um, but the crew chief told him that it wasn't just one shell, it was 11. 11 unexploded shells had hit the tank. The shells had been sent off to be diffused. And the intel- then intelligence picked them up and they found that the shells contained no explosive charge. They were empty, all but one. In that one, that contained a little rolled-up note in Czech, and it translated, it said, this is all we can do for you now. The story goes that there were these uh, Czechs who were forced to work in a munitions plant for the Nazi war effort. They didn't try to blow up the factory or assassinate Hitler. They simply didn't put charges in the shells they worked on. How cool is that? It was all very quiet and went unnoticed, but worked salvation all the same. Now, this is often how God works with his people. Not all his work is noisy and dramatic. Sometimes we think God has abandoned us because we haven't had ears to hear the silent manner of him going about his business. This is often the Lord's way in redemptive history and we do well to remember it. We will not become too discouraged over Hophni and Phinehas so long as we see little Samuel walking around Shiloh reminding us that God's at work, he's solving leadership crisis, he's providing leadership for his people. Well, there's also mercy, there's judgment in the church and uh, this is our sort of a next section. section. But in verses 22 to 25, um, Eli makes an attempt to rebuke his rebellious sons, but they do not listen. They had indeed hardened their hearts so much that God had made repentance impossible. Now, we don't know his name, nor where he comes from. In fact, we know nothing about him, really. Uh, but this guy, this man of God, pops up in verse 27. Where's he from? Well, I don't know. Um, He comes to Eli, though, with the word of God. But it's not good news for Eli, is it? Who should have done more with his sons. They still served as priests and did for a while longer. 
There was no church discipline. Now you can follow the prophet's logic here. If you've got a Bible there, you can see it. In verse 28, this man of God reminds Eli of God's grace, which sort of helps us to see the sin and understand the sin in verse 29 or the, the self-centeredness and stupidity of it. See, Eli had, had been granted, like his, like his descendant, his father, probably Aaron, by the way. Uh, remember Aaron, who, who uh, was with Moses, um, he had been granted the privilege of priesthood, serving at the altar, wearing an ephod, um, the, enjoying the food offering. That, 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 that's a real privilege. He'd be granted that. Why then, look at verse 29, in the light of all these privileges and gifts that he mentions, why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honour your sons more than me? by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. And therefore, verse 30 and following, judgment is coming. Judgment that threatens Eli's whole family line. See, sin is serious and church leadership is serious. And both Eli's sons were told would die in a single day. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But there is hope. See, not all of the first, not all of Eli's descendants will be cut off from the Lord's altar, as in serving at the altar, serving in the temple. The ones who remain, though, in verse 33, well, they'll have tears in their eyes and grief in their heart for what has gone down. And second, God will raise up for himself a faithful priest. Verse 35. Well, we'll come back to that in a minute, um, wondering who that might be. But let's take a moment then to think about Eli's sin, which this man of God sums up. In verse 29, as honouring your sons more than me. See, in Eli's world, God's honour takes a back seat, preferring my boys over my God. Being a parent's hard. No doubt about that. Being a parent is hard. And Eli's sons were no angels. <laughs> he may not have been able to control their immorality, but he sure could have kicked them out of leadership. Instead, it was my boys over my God. For Eli, blood was thicker than faithfulness. Eli put family before God. Eli put family before God's honour. Eli put family before God's church, his people, holiness, morality. Friends, we live in a, in a culture that effectively worships family. Family first to coin a phrase. <laughs> it's a great taboo topic, isn't it? When you, you can't, you don't question someone's love of family. You don't do that. You don't question family. And we get sucked into this worship when we place family, its activities, its lunches, its weekends away, its birthday parties, its sport, its music and so on, over the things of God. Do you know what we do? We dishonour God. When we, do, we place those things over God. When we place those worldly things, things that will, not, will pass away, over the things of God. We dishonour him. So parents, if family activities conflict with the things of God, his honour, his church, his morality, holiness, well then you've got to say no. You've got to say no. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 10, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Friends, you will be a better... Have confidence in this. You will be a better parent and grandparent when you put Jesus first, when you put his church first, when you put God's honour first. You will be a better parent and grandparent. We need to trust God in that. See, in the end, Eli, as he tolerates sin, well, he was weak, was he? Wasn't he? he? Perhaps he just wanted to be nice. Perhaps he just wanted peace. Man, every parent just wants peace. Let me speak from experience. That's what we want. And maybe it was all just a bit too hard. But yes, sometimes parenting is hard. Someone's following Jesus is really hard. But you'll be a better parent. You'll be a better husband. You'll be a better wife. You'll be a better brother or sister when you say, my God, over my boys or my girls. Whew, I'm going to take a break for a minute. <laughs> Very emotional for that for me, anyway. Can I have my water up here? <laughs> this didn't happen at a.m. Um, <laughs> Okay, sorry about that. Um, parenting is hard. It is hard. It is. And uh, for those who find it hard, I understand. Um, if you want to, we're going to have a Q&A at the end. Now, don't, have, don't let my emotion turn you off, um, please. That, we might want to ask a question about that and practicalities of those things too. So this was a Q&A we sort of saved up over the past few, um, over the past few weeks. Well, there's hope, though, in a, in a messy church, uh, God's stubborn purposes for his church. Uh, it's funny, um, well, it's not funny at all, really, uh, but this is another emotional thing that I'm going to talk about now. Did you know that in the American Episcopalian Church, that's the US Anglicans, um, church leaders, uh, bishops, presiding bishops, are effectively working against Bible-believing evangelical priests, uh, pastors, just like me. Um, these, these ministers of the gospel, just like me, are being opposed from within. Not only theologically, as they stand against false teaching, but they're also, um, with their families, being evicted from their homes. Uh, church buildings are being closed as, as bishops, presiding bishops, close churches that preach the gospel and believe the Bible is the word of God, that, that Jesus rose from the dead. They're being shut down. Uh, Opposed from within. Now, what hope is there? What hope is there for, for these Christians when their own leaders persecute them and oppose them? Uh, what hope is there? Well, we see it in verse 35 of 1 Samuel chapter 2, <laughs> and which the New Testament tells us finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So the last, the last point in this message delivered to Eli is remarkable. Human resistance and disobedience will not distract God from his purposes for his people, his church. Verse 35, you can read it with me. It says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one always. See, now it's important to understand that a promise such as this does not necessarily have only one fulfilment. So we, don't, we shouldn't just jump to Jesus every time. We'll get there, 
but it just might take us a bit of time to get there. So in one sense, Samuel fulfills this promise, although he's more of a prophet than a priest, but he will indeed do what is in God's heart and mind. And looking further ahead, this promise is fulfilled somewhat in the priest Zadok. You probably haven't heard much about Zadok. Um, sounds like something out of Star Wars, but he's not. He's a real person. Um, Zadok was in 1 Kings 2, 1 Kings 4. But actually, he continued to serve and his family or his house continued to serve right up until the exile. Uh, but, he, but he could not be described as, as um, ministering before God's anointed king always, as verse 35 says. But of course, the Bible points us to a great high priest, the great faithful priest who God finally raised up, and that is his priest Jesus. He became, I've got it there in verse, uh, Hebrews 2 verse 7, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. It's Jesus, God's great faithful high priest, God's anointed king, who will provide faithful and secure leadership for his church. The story of how God has done that, well, takes the rest of the Bible to explain. Jesus, God's anointed, is the real and certain hope in a sometimes messy church. Well, with Eli and Hophni and Phinehas in mind, the New Testament words about Jesus should fill us with wonder. You can see them there on the screen, Hebrews 7, verse 26. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. How about I pray as we focus on those words up on the screen there and, um, and we'll have a time for questions. Um, can't promise answers, but a time for questions or comments and then we'll uh, see how we go. Let me pray. Father, thank you for um, uh, your word to us today. Uh, some things in your word are hard and sometimes life um, as a follower of Jesus is difficult and it takes sacrifice and putting you first. Lord, we pray um, for us, for those of us who are parents and grandparents, we pray that we would indeed put you first, that your honour is more important. But we know, Lord, that makes us a good parent and it makes us a good grandparent. We want to trust you in that. Lord, we, um, we pray for your church, for your broader church too. It is devastating and tragic to hear that there are church leaders in the Anglican church who are working against you and are working against uh, those who teach your word faithfully and teach the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would silence such leaders and put them out of their roles. But Lord, you would raise up and continue to raise up leaders who would preach your gospel faithfully, who would stand firm for it, who would not take a backward step. Lord, give them great strength. We pray for those families in the Episcopalian Church in North America who are being kicked out of their homes and the churches are being closed down. Um, we pray that you give those, those pastors and their families and those churches great strength as they continue to depend on you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us in Jesus. Amen.